Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today is the Z-Bound Rebound Podcast. So many of you know that Eli Lilly had a product that recently came to market specifically for weight loss. Uh, it is terzepatide, but they named it Z-Bound. I, I don't care if it is actually pronounced Z-Bound because I am trying to get this term to yep. become a hashtag. Z-Bound rebounded. And that's just when your pharmacy benefits manager decides that you need a new prior auth for the new year, uh, and then you lose access to your medication and start regaining weight with no chance of tapering the dose. Yeah, so that's why we're bulking right now. (laughs) When we get our Z-Bound approved. Our our faces may be a little fuller. (laughs) Yeah, uh, not really though, but uh, yeah, seriously, I was driving in and I was thinking, and I'm... Uh, my winter bulk is going pretty well. My weight lifts are going up, but I want to be super shredded for the summer. So when I go to uh, my med spa, I need to ask my plastic surgeon friend to oversee my GLP-1 prescription. Um, you know, I don't have a ton of money right now because of the holidays. So I wanted a good deal for the first month. And to my surprise, uh, an, a local med spa was advertising on the radio that a plastic surgeon would oversee your GLP-1 prescription. And uh, yeah, I guess if you were my plastic surgeon, what would you t- what, what would you tell me? Uh, that it's not expensive. It doesn't cost an arm and a leg, just, uh, <laughs> just a gallbladder and $99 for the first month and $300 a month after that. So I probably only need it for like three or four months. By May, I'd be shredded, jacked, tan, and ready to go to the beach. Absolutely. So after that, um, like, let's say I need to taper off. Is it still $300 a month? If you're taking zero milligrams. <laughs> uh, or if it, you go back to your low dose that you started on. Yeah. Does my insurance cover it? What's that? If I'm a plastic surgeon, I've had, I've never heard of insurance before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fair enough, I guess. But uh, yeah, I guess that this med spa was advertising that their board certified plastic surgeon was overseeing the GLP-1 prescribing. And you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, a total year would normally cost 3,600, 300 bucks a month, if my math is correct. And they're advertising that it's really 3,400. So it really doesn't seem like that great of a deal in the context of if you start it, you are likely going to need to continue it for much more than 20 weeks, unfortunately. Yes. It's speaking in terms of averages. So, you know, the average population, the average intervention, uh, it's really convenient that both of these trials have come out recently and we can kind of stack the graphics right on top of each other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one product being semaglutide, this is Wegovi, uh, the Novo product, the other being Terzepatide, uh, Zepbound, Zbound, the Lily product. Yeah. The graphs look very similar. Yeah. So, Novo did a 20-week run-in uh, where both groups got the semaglutide and then uh, they, they did what we call a rug pull on the uh, placebo group where there was basically no tapering. They went from probably at this point max dose, so 1.7 mm-hmm. or 2.4 depending on tolerability, to zero. And then they start regaining weight. Yep. We, we can only speculate what would have happened if they would have like properly tapered people or provided them with a... Yeah, say a lower cost alternative is a bridge. Yep. Uh, but this is what we have. So very yeah. similar to what we see with the Lilly product. I'm just glad that if this happens in real life and somebody loses insurance coverage, 
I'm just glad that they have to stop cold turkey with no taper whatsoever, because you definitely wouldn't want to switch these people to compounded GLP-1 due to the shortage, for sure. Yeah, we don't know the risks. I saw a uh, obesity medicine physician saying that we don't know the risks. It could cause cancer. I, you can say that about anything. I, I think this is just some you know, fear-mongering. Um, and, and there are exceptions for compounding and do probably know what uh, certifications your compounding pharmacy has and doesn't have, um, and ideally where they are sourcing their semaglutide from. If it's just yes. some powder from overseas in China, then you know you, you can test, but you may not know what impurities are in there. It's basically UGL. If it's a, that's that stands for underground labs. <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, and if it's a FDA approved or FDA inspected facility that is yep. doing the compounding or providing the bulk supply then you know that could be a good vote of confidence so hint most compounding pharmacies that are compounding glp1s and peptides you would not want to use their glp1 or peptides so that's a hint there are several good ones and it is another reason why it is very important to trust your healthcare provider um, i certainly wouldn't want a mystery syringe although i guess one benefit of the mystery unmarked pre-filled syringe in your fridge is it'd be very easy to do a rug pull study with them you can just fill it with saline. Yeah. That, Although you need informed consent, a pesky it's kind of ethical pesky. detail. Yeah. <laughs> if it seems like we're a little bit uh, sassy about this topic, it's because there, uh, like many things in health, there's this false dichotomy of, um, you know, in general, academia or people who own companies that have heavy vested financial interest and bias in using just. Um, you know, uh, brand name medications, and then individuals who have heavy vested financial interest in using generics, or even worse, compounded generics, or even worse, you have to use our couple compounding pharmacies, otherwise we will not prescribe you anything without it, hundreds of dollars of prescription fee. But wait, there's more. There's people that are also recommending semaglutide interzepatide from research chemical websites. So. You have a continuum of worse and worse management. Yeah, um, which is sad, but there is a happy medium in between where you can meet the patient on their individual basis. It kind of irks me that you see all these individuals, um, like my hypothetical self, that uh, go on this ZepBound rebound, GLP-1 rebound, just because they want to be more shredded for the summer. Um, and you can't look at someone and tell that they do or don't have insulin resistance or whatnot. And, you know, maybe they have type 1.5 diabetes. So, uh, you know, don't judge someone if they tell you that they're doing something. But at the same time, um, you know, in general, uh, you see all these people getting GLP-1s that really are unlikely to benefit from them and that have a lot of risk and harm. And then on the other end, we still have patients that have type 2 diabetes that cannot get these medications covered. Yeah, your risk reward profile for someone who wants to you know, drop 10 pounds for the summer versus someone who wants to actually control their diabetes and yep. get to an A1C goal, two very different risk reward pictures. In something like, have... yeah, something like 5% of diabetics, I believe it is still single digit. Now I'm sure that number is rising very quickly, mm. but I believe it's still a single digit of individuals with type 2 diabetes that are on GLP-1s. And I, I think that even included SGLT2. That was also a very yeah. low number. But now you have a cash pay uh, SGLT2 that's about $50 a month. Yep. Mark Cuban Pharmacy called Brenzavi. It's not as good as the other ones. But um, 
I'd let whoever know that could potentially benefit from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now you also have, you know, your gym, I go to lifetime fitness and they also have their, you know, cookie cutter GLP one protocol, which I guess if you happen to be a type two diabetic that goes there, that doesn't have insurance coverage or like, doesn't go to the doctor, like maybe they could pick up one or two of those people nationwide, but it's, it's probably just, uh, a bunch of gym goers that want to be a little bit more shredded for the summer. Yeah. Uh, race to the bottom. Everyone that's trying to sell access to medication. Um, so I guess diving back into the, the split, right? So yep. medication versus placebo, uh, we'll take a look at what the physical activity and, and dietary counseling. So the, the lifestyle change intervention actually looked like for these studies. And I know you discussed this in a little bit more detail, yep. uh, podcast with Dr. Taylor Martin on the channel. We did. So definitely check that out, but here, here's sort of kind of rehashing it. Um, they told them 500 calorie deficit relative to your estimated TEE. Um, and I'll skip down to how they estimated the TEE. So they put a multiplier of 1.3 over the basal metabolic rate. Uh, and for reference, a 1.2 is completely sedentary. So little, no exercise, desk job. Um, and if you're telling people to be active by just walking briskly, Again, 150 minutes a week. This is just like the AHA guidelines. No mention of resistance training or anything like that. Um, and putting a 1.3 multiplier on there, it's, it's almost like they expected people not to actually increase activity. This is what they want because they need a reason to add their myostat inhibitor. That's true. Mm -hmm. yeah, put on your tinfoil hat for that one. <laughs> I believe we've talked about, we talked about that in one of the podcasts or posts. Yeah, I think we went over the, the studies of bumagrumab in type 2 diabetes. It definitely seems to increase lean body mass. And I assume with the acquisition of the Versanus bio company, now they're trying to formulate that into a, a pin injection rather than an IV infusion that would be done outpatient. Yeah, you probably don't spend $2 billion on something that um, you just plan to have as a project for fun. Um, unless you're GSK and you're trying to get sirtuins to help with longevity. Well, the scientists said that those would work for sure. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Sirtuis or something like that? Was that the, yeah, the company? Yeah. So yeah. those uh, history, drug development history enthusiasts out there will appreciate that reference. Yes. They did meet with a dietitian every fourth week, so about once a month, yep. either through visit or phone. Um, and they were encouraged to track their food, uh, but they only log food intake and physical activity three days prior to their call with the dietitian. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting to me. It, it's almost like when you, um, we've seen this with some of the CGM data in patients um, where you see these sort of you know, wide yes. glucose fluctuations where people are kind of just eating whatever they want to, uh, which is probably better than baseline because you have the, the Hawthorne effect. They kind of know that we have access to this data, mm -hmm. um, but then like, you know, three days before they're about to go get their blood work drawn, uh, it's like that, oh, shoot, I'm about to get my blood work drawn. And you see a, a very flat glucose. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, there are some changes being made, or they acutely became much more insulin sensitive, whichever it may be. Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit of both. And it's particularly interesting to see data like this, uh, digging into the materials and methods, because this is not terrible. This is, uh, it might be better than your average. Um, but you would think that patients that are willing to sign up for a study will have a high degree of buy-in. And however good or reasonable this intervention is, it clearly did not work well because you see that crazy amount of weight rebound. 
So they did not pick up the lifestyle habits, the diet and the exercise that can maintain, although 5% or so did. Yeah, it did not work well for most people. Yeah. Now, it would have worked really well if they made everybody carnivore or vegan, but since they let them choose uh, like a variety of different, more reasonable diets, then maybe that's why it didn't work. Yeah, so if you are the, I guess the 5%, so the 5% that went off the semaglutide, and, or I'm sorry, in this case, terzepatide, yep. uh, and maintained over 25% of your body weight lost, and those people, they kept doing what they had been doing. You know, they had, I think, 36 weeks of eating less food and kind of getting accustomed to that, um, perhaps decreased cravings, all these things helped them and had some sort of a legacy effect. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at people who maintain more than 80% of their weight loss, it's about 16%, um, yep. which is pretty impressive. So, you, you know, I mean, it's what, one in five people, cold turkey, so in a suboptimal condition, uh, one in five people may not need to take these long-term to have significant health improvement. Yeah, uh, I guess as an obesity medicine physician, I just can't believe they would take those people off. It's unethical, they're suffering. And um, what the evidence tells us is that people that go on GLP-1s for weight loss need to stay on lifelong indefinitely. They should put those 5% or 16% of people who have maintained really good weight loss, they should put them back on GLP-1s immediately, shouldn't they? If you follow the messaging of some of the, I guess, obesity medicine physicians that own platforms that just happen to prescribe GLP-1s, um, you would be led to believe that that was the case. But again, I think it's fair to say that most people who abruptly quit their GLP-1 are going to regain a substantial amount of yeah. weight, lose some of the health benefit. But again, just like these don't work for every single person, you know, there's about 15% in terms of semaglutide who just don't lose more than 5% of their body weight. As a takeaway that uh, you could take so that we're actually providing some help and I'm not just being sarcastic the whole time, um, I would say 100% of the time that someone's on a GLP-1 and they want to get off or they're ready to get off, hopefully, they're at their goal, they've had the beta cell preservation effect, then you either slowly titrate them off or you use some other adjunct, even if it's uh, appetite suppression supplementation, there's many ways to do it. Um, I know that our friend Derek has his product Apolline, which is a much more affordable version of Plenity, basically. Um, I don't see any reason why I'm not allowed to say that, but um, there's a lot of ways that you can um, wean yourself off without having that huge rebound. Yeah, so this is kind of looking at a suboptimal use case where you know, you're, you're told to walk more, um, you're not told about resistance training, uh, increasing muscle mass, increasing mm -hmm. your metabolic rate. Um, you're not, you know, given a, a bridge, um, like you taper off and then whenever you quit completely, perhaps using a different appetite suppression, whether it's supplemental, whether it's mm -hmm. pharmacologic. Yep. So this is kind of worst case scenario, you know, 16% of people are still maintaining that weight loss. So again, these studies aren't really looking at the individual level, but whenever you go into the supplemental data, you can kind of see like, yes, most people do regain weight, but there's a subset of people who like, you know, for whatever reason, this seems like it's a positive catalyst in their life. Yeah. And then they were able to sort of take off the, we'll call the drug, the training wheels, and then keep on riding the bike. Mm -hmm. I don't believe I saw this data in either of the studies, but it, what would have also been very interesting, again, as Dr. Martin mentioned, is to see the change in resting heart rate in the 5% or 16% with an 80% of individuals that kept the weight off after having the rug abruptly pulled from them. Again, that is very impressive to do that. 
I would have loved to see if their resting heart rate dropped by five points or by 10 points because yeah. I bet it did. Yeah, I think it was three to five points. It dropped when they went back to placebo, right? You yep. see three to five beat per minute increase when they go on the drugs. Seems like they stimulate the SA node. And then when they go off, despite gaining weight on average, their heart rate goes down on average. So you'd think that the individuals that not only came off the GLP-1, they also started exercising. Ideally, um, the, perhaps they got an effect of 10 beats per minute. You would expect a, a stronger effect in someone who's picked up a movement pastime to last a lifetime. Yeah, it, it's sort of like when they do these studies looking at the common factors in people who were able to maintain the weight loss. Um, in this case, I just don't think the authors had an interest in seeing, hey, what was this 5% of people doing? What was this 16% of people doing differently than the others in the placebo? So there's no subgroup analysis there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that they have some data on that. They collected data on every single participant. It's just a matter of, you know, why would you spend the money to look at that when you're trying to ultimately, you know, return value to shareholders and increase sales and demand for your product? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the authors did. I like to read these in sort of a, a passive aggressive way, but these are comments from the Novo trial about some of the participants who dropped out for various reasons. These are the top three out of the several dozen that I read through. Yeah. So in one of them, the patient decided after randomization, I, when I first read this, I thought it said after randomly deciding to go vegan, <laughs> patient decided not randomly decided to go vegan, but decided to go vegan after randomization. And also they didn't want to comply with diaries because if they had complied with diaries, it'd be interesting to see what happened in that case, but no diaries. Uh, the next one is the patient says they were compliant, but the duns, I think that's pins, but a typo were returned and they were unused. And then lastly, uh, due to enough weight loss, parentheses, in participants' opinion, they're not willing to participate anymore. Yeah, they, they really called them out there. So the patient thought, hey, I lost enough weight. Um, I, I assume that the principal investigator disagreed. Um, so they put that in there. But in any case, the patient, like, there's no law that says you have to take a GLP-1. So they decided they did not want to participate anymore. Yep. And if somebody's wondering if their metabolic health markers, you know, their labs are reasonably normal, what is a reasonable amount of weight to lose for a male? Um, at least under 20% body fat, ideally on a DEXA. And for a female, at least under 33% body fat, ideally on a DEXA. Yeah, those are some good, good rules of thumb. And then I think, you know, there was a number of other reasons people were, you know, dropping out of the study. And yep. some people have a hard time changing their relationship with food. I mean, food is something that is very enjoyable. That's uh, a big part of you know, culture, a big mm -hmm. part of families. Um, and some people, you know, they, they don't like not enjoying and not eating substantial amounts of food. And I think that speaks more to their sort of psychological either relationship with or reliance on food as you know, a coping factor or just something yep. that they're not willing to give up. Almost like, uh, you know, people who aren't ready to quit smoking. Yes. You know, are, are you ready to quit overfeeding? Now, again, you don't hear a whole lot about that, but there's definitely cases of that we've seen in our patient population where... You know, people are, for whatever reason, you know, relying on that. Yeah. Average number of times to quit smoking, uh, like average number of attempts before the first success is 11. At least it was a decade ago. Probably still something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if the average number of times to attempt to quit that kind of like food eating addiction cycle, if someone has that, 
again, not everybody who's obese has that. Um, I would assume that it's also 11. So the advice that we give in situations like that is keep trying and keep a, like keep attempting. It's just like if, you, if you're not going to make a three-pointer on the first attempt, you have to keep attempting it in order to eventually make one. Yeah, it, people are able to lose weight short term. It, it's the weight loss maintenance, yep. um, and sometimes the the GLP one is something you use in a you know damage control mode. So you have got person who has you know their their blood pressure is elevated secondary to their weight, and you're really starting to see these health risks pile up, and the trajectory of their health looks particularly not good. Mm-hmm. It's like hey, we've we've got to pull the ripcord here at some point and get things back on track. Um, you know, just predicting, you know, what's going to happen if nothing changes. It's like, well, we don't want this little five pound weight regain to turn into 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds. There's lots of people that have lost 50 pounds, gain it back, lost 100 pounds, gain it back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fairly a common story that you hear when people are just not able to maintain the weight loss. Yeah. And that's why I've heard a lot of influence, influencers on YouTube and Instagram say, why do a GLP-1 when you can just do peptides? Wait, what is the... P and GLP-1 stand for? Peptide. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you might hear some influencers say, you know, just do peptides, do HRT, do this, do that. And uh, that's like saying, just do medications. Each medication, just like each peptide or each hormone that is medication, has its own unique benefit and detriment, just like GLP-1s do. We just happen to be concentrating on these uh, really interesting studies from terzepatide and semaglutide today. Yeah, two two pretty big trials, and I I actually didn't know about the the Z-bound, Z-bound study until I have to have our editor take out every time that I say Z-bound and, and dub it as Z-bound, Z-bound because I'm trying to get that to catch on hashtag Z-bound rebound. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's definitely catchy, um, but yeah, hopefully this has given people some some good takeaways, and hopefully it's seen as a uh, like a positive contribution to the obesity medicine community. We're certainly not trying to take swings at like any other clinic. I think we've probably said something uh, that could be construed as negative to like med spas, peptide clinics, hormone clinics, your usual obesity clinics, academia, like pretty much yeah, every they're single. All, they're all business models. Yeah. They're just different types of business models and everyone is going to have its pros and cons. And we're just a combination of all of the above. So um, we're uh, culpable in uh, like all the same ways. It's just something that we have struggled with trying to find a balance between um, conventional medicine and the alternative medicine community. And uh, this is our attempt to give you a balanced approach to that. Yeah. And here's some, I guess we should tag on this non-financial advice, um, but just advice that you could take into account when you're looking at your financial situation uh, X med spa fill in the blank mm. sells their semaglutide for, you know, two ninety nine per month. Um, keep in mind that the cost of semaglutide, and this is from a you know reputable compounding pharmacy, yep. would be three hundred dollars for twenty milligrams. So their cost of the med spa is only thirty dollars a month. Yep. Um, it's on average, right? Dose depends, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's two hundred seventy dollars of profit of the three hundred that you pay any of these clinics that you get GLP one at. Yeah, so they have basically a ninety percent plus or minus margin. Um, so if you just get hundred patients, a couple hundred patients, if you're handing out GLP one to everyone that comes in, yeah, you can see yeah. from a financial standpoint why someone might do that. From an ethical standpoint, 
people have different thresholds there and that's a whole other conversation but just keep in mind how much they are overcharging you yeah um and as we've mentioned before our ideal glp1 and peptide and this is for any peptide is the brand name peptide so yeah. for bromelanotide it'd be vilisi do we prescribe that a lot no we do not uh so keep that in mind for all peptides including glp1s but at the same time, if you're an individual, again, that happens to have type 2 diabetes and zero insurance coverage for GLP-1, then you are a phenomenal candidate that uh, can consider a different way of getting this. Yeah, if, I think if that's I was fair. in their shoes, that's what I would want to know. Um, so that's our view on that. Uh, I can't think of anything else to go over, but as always, we appreciate comments, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or wherever, and reviews if you liked our podcast too, if you liked our sarcasm and uh, poor humor, um, it would be appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for watching. May God bless you with health and happiness. Mm -hmm.